0: Good singing. You may be seated. To all the ransomed church of God, be saved to sin no more. Isn't it true if you belong to Christ? The forgiveness of sin is wonderful, and you're thankful. But you can also say, I don't want to sin any more. I look forward to that day uh, with great longing, great hope. All right, join me there if you're not already there. Back in First Kings 19, uh, we're in a little bit of a holiday hiatus from the book of Ephesians. And so I thought we might uh, continue that one more week uh, with what is probably for most a, a fairly familiar passage. At least I, I hope that it is. Uh, some of you, I'm going to test your memory, some of you, but uh, the very first time I met this church family, it was September of 2014. And the very first Sunday school uh, that I was privileged to teach, of course, that was over at the other building, and most of you weren't here at the time, but uh, we were in 1 Kings 19. And I know for me, this is it's become a very, very precious passage over the years to me, the more I walk with God. And I think, I don't know all the reasons why. Uh, Maybe because it illustrates what James said, that even a man like Elijah, a man of his spiritual stature, is actually a man of like passions like you and I. And uh, here we see, obviously, in living technicolor, that was certainly the case. This passage also displays the infinite mercy and patience of God. I don't know about you, but uh, I know what it's like to be under the juniper tree. Maybe that's another reason I like this passage. It helps me. And uh, this time of year... You know, for our family, the birthday seasons and the holidays have ended. Our anniversary is past, And we head into what the song calls the bleak midwinter, don't we? The winter doldrums. The cold, the dark, and maybe this time of year, I don't know. Maybe just humanly speaking, we need an exhortation like this a little more in the middle of winter. I'm not sure. But when you're reading the Bible straight through, and you read 1 Kings 17 and 18, and then you get just a little ways into chapter 19. If you're really paying attention, you sort of stop and say, huh, you, what just happened? You, this chapter stands in such complete contrast to the previous ones that it's almost shocking. And uh, the Lord does that on purpose. Uh, just a couple chapters back in chapter 17, Elijah the Tishbite just appears out of nowhere. No formal introduction. Just, and Elijah the Tishbite. And uh, he begins his uh, career as a prophet, as far as you and I know. We're introduced to him. We're out of nowhere. He shows up, and he tells this wicked king Ahab, there's not going to be rain in the land until I say. Well, that's quite a way to start your ministry. Then he raises a widow's son to life supernaturally. Supernaturally. And then, of course, we find the crescendo there in chapter 18 on top of Mount Carmel. And most of us are quite familiar with that account. In fact, if you pay attention there in the wording, he he goes, remember, he goes to King Ahab and they finally see each other. And Ahab, remember what Ahab asked him? Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Are you the troublemaker? Which, by the way, is what rebellion always does with truth. And Elijah says, I'm not the one causing the problem. You have turned your back on God. You're causing the problem. And so Elijah tells him, gather all the nation together, uh, grab the 450 prophets of Baal, and they ask them for the 400 prophets of Asheroth or of the grove. So Elijah actually requested 850 of those men. Only 450 came evidently. But so he stands there, a solitary figure as a voice for God on that mountain, with 450 satanic false prophets, all the nation with an earshot who showed up, and the king to boot. And he challenges these prophets, well, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. Everybody says, fair enough. And so they make their sacrifice, and they're cutting themselves, and they're crying, and Elijah's just sitting there making a joke out of it because it was pathetic. Maybe your God's on vacation. And we would say, maybe you should send him a text message. I, maybe, you know, maybe he's at it. He maybe forgot about you or something. And of course, nothing happens. And Elijah sets his uh, sacrifice out and uh, they pour water on it, which was a precious commodity in the middle of a drought. And they dump water and they dump water and they dump water and they, water, and they fill the trench all the way around. And Elijah prays a relatively short prayer. Whoomph. The fire of God falls. It burns the sacrifice. It burns the wood. It burns the rocks. It burns up the water. And it even burns up the dust. And as one man, all the nation hits their face boom. And they're all crying out, The Lord, that's Jehovah. The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. The key word of chapter 18 is triumph. A key word of chapter 19 would be defeat, at least initially. In chapter 18, Elijah's soaring on wings like an eagle, looking down on the world of mere men. In chapter 19, his wings are clipped and he plummets back to earth with an unimpressive thud. And all of a sudden, he sees with panic from Jezebel's threat and this same mighty prophet now turns his back and hightails it in fifth gear down to Beersheba, which is about as far south as you can go in the land of Israel. And he leaves a servant there, which is symbolic of the fact that he believes his ministry's over. And then he goes even further into the wilderness, and there he sits under a juniper tree. Now, uh, you live in Montana, you know what a juniper tree is. It might sound stately, sitting under a tree. Maybe you picture this big maple tree, mingled shade, nice lawn. Not so much. Uh, Juniper trees are sort of a gnarled shrub, rough nettles. And here he is sitting in the dirt, sun beating on his head under that tree. And he's tormented by fears. He's battered by doubts, he's confused by appearances. At least in my mind, I picture him just racked by intense sobbing, and tears running down his face. And it's not like Elijah forgot about what happened on Carmel. Part of the mental battle is how'd I go from there to here exactly? When he's asking God to take his life. What a change. I don't know about you, but if I just read 18, I sure wouldn't have guessed what came in chapter 19. Isn't it true in our own life? You can look in your rearview mirror and you can say, There have been times where I wish the story ended yesterday. I was riding high, things were good, God seemed near, prayers were answered, life made sense. And God brought you off of Carmel. For one reason or another, you find yourself in total despondency under your own juniper tree. That's what we're talking about this morning. A case of spiritual depression. I feel like every time I use that word, I've used it a few times here in public teaching. I need to qualify it a little. We're not speaking about the misery that is the result of known unrepentant sin. Okay, Remember what David said in Psalm 32, heart-wrenching passage. I think most of us know by experience what it's like to have sin we won't deal with. David says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. And uh, you have to remember chronologically from the time David committed adultery and then murder until the time that Nathaniel waves that bony finger and says, thou art the man, a year had gone by. And in that year, there had been a mourning widow whose next husband murdered her last husband. There's the wedding bells that ring. There's a child that's born. And here's David all the while trying to keep the lid on things, doing his best to portray this as a normal family. What's wrong, dear? Oh, nothing. Everything's fine. Well, not so much. That's different than what Elijah's going through. David's there was a result of sin, although David did face something like this elsewhere. And of course, we're not giving credence to the field of modern Christian pop psychology. Now, there is such a thing as biblical counseling, okay, if we understand that. But the type that's not gospel or Christ centered, uh, we frankly have no use for. Because it doesn't get down to the root level. The Bible is not a counseling book for the ungodly. Do we understand that? And what I mean is, there's no, there's no book of the Bible that's written To give wisdom to people who hate God and don't want to follow Him. There's a reason that Solomon writes in the Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If somebody can't figure out life, the way of transgressors is hard. Things don't make sense. We don't know which way to go. The root issue has got to start with, are you in vital communion with the God of heaven? If the answer to that is no, We can't go any further. We have to start there. No biblical counsel deals with root causes. Make sure that somebody is in Christ. You can't put shingles on a house that hasn't even been framed or has no foundation. But nonetheless, among God's people, seasons of despondency absolutely can come. And many that God has greatly used in the past have testified of this very type of thing. I do think I can prove scripturally that it's the most passionate individuals that are often the most susceptible. It's interesting to look at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha was much more emotionally stable. (laughs) Uh, Elijah, his highs were really high, but his lows were real low. We see that in the New Testament with Peter and his brother Andrew. Peter was the one given to the extremes. Passionate for God, ready to stand for truth. Lord, I'll die with you. I don't know him. Right? Same kind of thing. But isn't God good to include portions of Scripture like this? (laughs) Uh, By the way, I think this is one of the many proofs that man didn't write this book. Uh, you think if Elijah was holding the pen, he'd said, why, I think I'll write that one. He'd have gone, I think we'll scribble that one out, right? So we're just going to approach it in two basic parts. All right, number one, what were the factors that led him to such extreme despondency? And how did God bring him out? All right, what were the factors? We're just going to quickly cover nine, and trust me, they will be quick. See if any of these ring true in your own life. Number one, there was a false expectation about what God was going to do next. The end of chapter 18, there had been no rain for three and a half years at Elijah's request. You compare it to James 5, it was Elijah praying for both of those. Now the entire nation had vehemently declared their allegiance to the God of heaven. And uh, King Ahab is at least passive, if not convinced. Ahab gave no objection to the slaughter of the false prophets. So, these guys are all out of the picture. And all the nation has verbally shouted, The Lord, He is the God. We are servants of Jehovah. Now Elijah prays again. God sends a torrential downpour. Now in Elijah's shoes, what would you expect to happen next? The hand of the Lord's upon Elijah. He runs 15 or so miles ahead of Jezebel's, or Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel, the capital city. Because I say... He was expecting a national reform to happen and he was going there to complete the victory. False prophets are gone. God's displayed Himself unmistakably. Everybody saw it. All the nation declared allegiance to God. Ahab, let me kill the false prophets. Now let's go back to Jezreel and take care of the one last problem, shall we? But that wasn't God's plan as of yet. Sometimes our despondency comes because what we're inwardly thinking, why doesn't God do something? Secondly, there was the perception of immediate danger. I mean, Ahab's uh, milksop, Jezebel has a backbone of steel in her career of evil, service to the devil. And she's so obstinate and unflinching even after this massive display of divine power that she no doubt heard about, after seeing all of her heroes, these false prophets slaughtered, or hearing about it. Rather than saying, well, why not capitulate? I imagine Ahab's even saying, all right, dear, we can't fight this. She says to Elijah, you have less than 24 hours left on this earth. And he believed her. And God wasn't going to do anything about it right then. So there's the perception of immediate danger. Thirdly, there's the fact that he was coming off of a great spiritual victory. And this is something you can trace through the Bible and history. Unfortunately, you and I can't stay on the mountaintop. If I surveyed everyone here, you would all say, oh, I want to just live up there. Now don't get me wrong, you can live on the mountaintop in the sense of continual fellowship with God, but the external circumstances around you, what you see happening, if you and I were allowed on the mountaintop too long, we'd make an idol out of the mountaintop. And pretty soon we'd start to forget about the God who gives the mountaintop. Seasons come in life. Seasons come in churches. Don't get me wrong on this. I'm not trying to sound like some kind of prophet, but I'm, I've learned as a pastor, you go through seasons of encouragement, visible blessing. Don't rest on that too much. Pruning shears are going to come back out. It's all part of the seasons in God's workmanship. The same is true in your own life. Seasons come and seasons go. You know, it's an interesting thing If you step back and stare at the highest mountain peaks, you notice what is not there. There's no straight line in between. They wouldn't be peaks if there was a straight line. So in other words, the only way forward off of a peak is down. What else do you notice about mountain peaks? There's no vegetation. You see, all the nutrients, all the growth are down in the valley. The valley is the place of vision. He'll give us the vistas to see where He's brought us. He'll give us the vistas as an encouragement, but we can't stay on the mountain peak forever. And sometimes coming off of this, some kind of spiritual victory, there's this letdown. Fourthly, there's the fact that He's doing battle with the forces of evil. Is that ever taxing? (laughs) And Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I I find it interesting he uses the word wrestle. Not even swing a sword or or shoot at, as we would say. It's actual hand-to-hand grappling. No, not physically. But why use the picture of wrestling? Because it's intense. It's hand-to-hand. It's strenuous. And that's how he depicts our spiritual warfare. Is it tiring wrestling against an enemy you can't see? <laughs> There's no question about that. It's extremely exhausting at times. Now how about number five? There's this intense feeling of loneliness. Uh, he's preoccupied with the notion that he's the only one of his kind left. He's the only remaining bastion of truth. In all the land of Israel, no one else understands. No one else is faithful. No one else has been in my shoes. No one else really cares to obey God. You know, it's a satanic ploy. But I wonder, How easy is it to convince you and I that we're all alone? I can tell you with me, it's not very hard. That's one of the reasons I think the Lord commands us to gather frequently. Because the forces of darkness want to get you away from the pack where they can circle you. And one of the satanic tricks is the whisper in that ear of yours, you're all alone. Nobody quite understands. The Bible doesn't really address this topic. You may as well just buckle. You want to buckle? I love some of the passages in the New Testament that give the lie to that. Why would Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, there hath no temptation taken, that means seized you, but such as is common to man. Or how about Peter, what he wrote to the afflicted brother, and He said, Beloved, think it not strange. By the way, the word strange means foreign or unique. Think it not unique concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Or 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, just after he depicts the devil's a roaring lion. He tells you to resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Which Christian in this room is in the devil's crosshairs? Every single one. Now sure, the trials that all of us face as individuals, they're different. But in principle... They all come back to the same satanic roots. God is not doing something fast enough. God doesn't want to answer your prayers. Why, look what you did yesterday. You're not a spiritual so-and-so. You don't feel like reading and praying today. How about you don't? Just today, though. Any of those voices sound familiar? There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Number six factor was Elijah's extreme self-pity. And you see, his entire thought process sort of kept spiraling inward until it all revolves around the word I. Self-pity feels really good sometimes. But it's an enemy. Self-pity is just pride turned around backwards. And so Elijah's looking for total isolation. Now, I want to say that there is a good and a bad kind of isolation. The type of isolation says, I want to get alone and be with God and work through some of this. That's fine. The type of isolation that says, I don't want any influence. I don't want any fellowship. I don't want any help. You don't know what I'm going through. I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to God. I'm not listening to the Bible. It's a very dangerous kind of isolation. Number seven, there's the loss of confidence in God's calling. I know it strikes a chord with me when I read that. I'm not better than my father's. What he's communicating is, I wanted to make a mark on this world for God. But as it turns out, I've done nothing more than the generations behind me that hated God. He's saying, I don't see any good coming out of what I've done or what I'm doing. His days were over. His life was useless. What a fiery dart that is. Why would we need the exhortation? Be not weary in well-doing. Because it's weary in well-doing. For in due season, we will reap if we faint not. Elijah was very, very weary in well-doing. And uh, may I say that's a fiery dart Uh, perhaps from the devil that's especially poignant to some who are carving out a first-generation Christian family. Oh, the wicked one's going to bring it up to you. What difference are you making? What good have you done? He accuses the brethren day and night. I think God's mouth's going to be shut someday. But for now, we can expect what's going to come out of it. How about some more basic things? Hunger. I mean, Elijah at this point is starving, malnourished, low on vitamins, and very fuzzy-headed. How many of you think really well when you're super hungry? (laughs) ever hear that modern term, hangry? (laughs) Right? I'm not justifying sin, but I'm saying, I know if I'm trying to prepare sermons and my vitamins are low, this just doesn't want to get out of the park. So he's malnourished. He's hungry. And then number nine, there's just the sheer physical exhaustion. Most of us have had times where you're going and going and going and more comes and you you plow through that. But as soon as there's a seam somewhere in the duties, you hit the wall. (laughs) I remember when we were trying to move down here, You know, the Lord had sold our house and then I ended up building an addition on the house while we were trying to move. Some of you remember that story. It's a long story. But we were cranking and going early and late and trying to get everything done. Go, 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 go. Don't have time to stop. The Lord smites me with influenza. And I spent five days on my back. Couldn't move hardly. But the glorious thing is it turned to rejoicing on about day two because I realize now things are so impossible, the pressure's off me to try to do it in human energy. And I had a grand few days. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we just flat hit the wall. The physical exhaustion. Now, in his case, you imagine the spiritual adrenaline on Mount Carmel. Can you imagine? The heart pumping, the energy level, and then... The tremendous distance traveled. He supernaturally outruns a chariot in the middle of a torrential downpour for 15 miles. He girds up his loins and takes off running ahead of the chariot. I wouldn't make it a half a mile. At least not running hard. Uh, <clears throat> then he travels over a hundred miles uh, to Beersheba, in total distress. Uh, Then he goes several miles into the wilderness all alone. And you can bet the forces of darkness pounding on his head like a sledgehammer the whole way. You loser. Why don't you go die? And uh, then he ends up going 200 more miles to Mount Sinai over a period of 40 days. And so on top of all the fear factor and everything else, he's just worn down. I mean, what a recipe for the slew of despond. All right, but how did God bring him out? And uh, indirectly, how can you and I help bring others out? Because I can guarantee you, if you're Christian long enough, you're going to wear both hats. You remember the time in uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Where, i try to remember, which city were they heading into? I think they're heading into the Valley of Humility, of all things. And he passes his brother, runs on ahead of him, and he's smirking and smiling to himself. I'm ahead of my brother. Whack! Down he goes. (laughs) Isn't that true? First of all, God seems to just ignore His misguided prayer. (laughs) He just ignores it. You uh, Look at verse 4. He went a day's journey, sits under the juniper tree. He requested for himself that he might die. And he says, it is enough. In other words, my usefulness is finished. By the way, who are you and I to decide that? I mean, if you went to your toolbox and you picked out your wrench and he looked to you and he said, my usefulness is done. I would remind my wrench that it was a wrench and it belonged to me and it could get back in the toolbox now. Right? So, he says, my usefulness is done. I am no better than my father's. So he's examining the value of his life through human lenses, which, by the way, are always cloudy. And Paul says, I don't even judge myself before the time, let alone others. (laughs) I firmly believe the things that God rewards us most for are going to be the things that we go, I forgot about that. He says, let me die. Essentially, he's calling God a failure for keeping Him alive. Either God's at fault with His management of the universe Or if you're sitting here alive this morning, you still have a divine purpose to be here. Aren't you glad that God in His great heart of love filters our prayers and ignores some of them? Have you ever prayed something and you said, I'm so glad God didn't answer that one? I have. (laughs) He sorts out the groanings which cannot be uttered and gives us what we crave in our inmost spirit even when we don't know ourselves. I think maybe the dearest prayers God says He saves in His bottle are the ones that we ourselves don't even fully understand. Don't get me wrong, I'm for long prayers sometimes. But sometimes our most effective prayers are short. And you go through the Scriptures and read the recorded prayers and there's very few that are long. I've had times in my own life where I was so under the weather all I could say was help. One word. That's all I could say. And guess what? That's all that was needed. And secondly, God lets him rest. In verse 5. Sometimes we just need sleep. There's a balance. We need to be disciplined and not going overboard on it. But don't think there's anything spiritual about depriving yourself of sleep. Sleep. I remember when I was just starting to drive. Hopefully some of you teenagers will be smarter than I was. About the third time I ran out of gas. I know, right? (laughs) So all y'all listen up. About the third time I ran out of gas in my car. My dad comes to help me and he says, You know, son, I'm going to tell you something my dad told me. No matter how hard you try, you can't wean your car off of gas. (laughs) I know it's profound, but it's never going to work. No matter how hard you try, you can't wean yourself off of sleep. You're a dependent creature. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Jesus did. Remember what it says in Psalm 127.2, "...it is vain for you to rise up early and sit up late." Nothing wrong with being up early. The Bible commends it. But what he's talking about in that verse, when you and I are acting like we've got to be up late, we've got to be up early so I can help God manage His universe. He said, it's vain. Give me a break. you. To eat the bread of sorrows. For so He giveth His beloved sleep. Thirdly, look at verse 5. As he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him. God touches him. Why do I say God? Well, this is the angel of the Lord if you follow this passage, which it's a long discussion, but it's, it, it, it's, it's pretty easy to prove. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity showing up. Before he ever came to Bethlehem. And so he shows up. He doesn't poke him with the stick, he doesn't kick him. He doesn't send an angel to smack him in the back of the head. He touches him. I'm here. Isn't it fitting that the one who would eventually leave the ivory palaces of heaven and take upon himself a body of flesh and bear our infirmities, and who even now as high priest does the same, that he would condescend to lay his hand upon this discouraged prophet. How about this one? You see it in verses 6 and 8. Speaking of the angel of the Lord, Christ again. He feeds him and gives him water. And he looked and behold there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. In verse eight, he arose and did eat and drink. So twice. It's sleep, eat, drink, sleep, eat, drink. You know the bread of heaven knows when you and I need the bread of the earth. I mean, does does he care about our physical needs? What do we see Jesus doing often? I mean, how many times can you think of Jesus in connection with bread? He feeds the hungry multitudes and gives a leftover basket souvenir to each doubting disciple. Here, take that home. Have a a snack later. Remember what happened here, right? Uh, He broke bread to reveal himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that? Here they are listening. They're saying our our heart burned within us and they didn't recognize Him until they saw that. Because they'd seen Him do it so many times. John 21, what a precious passage. First time Jesus speaks to to, to Simon Peter after Peter's bold denial. I don't know him. What's Jesus going to do? Just let him have it? Come and dine. You got a fire going, fish, honeycomb. All the while Peter's mind's doing this, the Lord just eats with him. Do you love me? Even as we're united eternally in heaven with him. Remember, he told the disciples, I'm not going to drink this again until when? Until I drink it with you. My Father's kingdom. Here's what's interesting, though, about this. When Elijah perceived himself to be useful, if you could have interviewed Elijah in chapter 17, chapter 18, Elijah, you doing a work for God? He just said, yes! And in those times, God uses unclean ravens to feed him. And He uses a widow, a poor widow, to feed him a humble little cake when Elijah thought he was useful. But when he totally fails, he's given a hand-prepared meal by the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Uh, I mean, uh, the goodness of God will lead a feat of repentance. Ha- haven't you found? Maybe it would be a good mental exercise if you've not done this in a while. Look back over your own pilgrimage. You can probably pick out times when on the heels of some of your worst failure came God's evident hand of goodness. And maybe not even something huge. The meal wasn't necessarily huge, but it was something very, very intimate and personal and unmistakably the goodness of God. I'm amazed. I'll share with my wife periodically as my children will say and do things, and the Lord will minister to me through them. And, uh, you know, predictably, after preaching what I did last week, the cannonade of Hell unloads in my house, at least against me personally, ever feel that way? I don't mean contention between us, but I mean the battle of the mind. Battle of prayer, the battle of study, the battle of walking with God. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm so thrilled and glad to be a bivocational pastor, but it has its set of struggles. You have to learn to dwell in in a sea of unfinished duties. That's just part of it not a complaint. It's reality. And so, as I very slowly work through this, there's seasons where I'll analyze my own life, and I, I sort of get under the juniper tree, and I'm saying, Lord, I'm not doing anything for you. There, there's so much to do. And it, it's, it's, it's not even a drip of water. Well, I was having one of those moments and uh, my wife, she mentioned, she, she made us this nice anniversary dinner this last week and we're sitting there and the children are serving. We're having our anniversary date. And I'm talking to my wife about some of this and the struggles with scheduling and different things. I'm under my juniper tree, you know. And here walks little Mariah. Just comes in boldly as usual. She hands me something and says, Daddy, I have a gift for you. Well, it's this wadded up piece of printer paper. That's the best she can fold it. That was pretty. And uh, I open it up. And it's just some green scribbles. And uh, I don't mean an audible voice, but I'm telling you, the Lord begins bringing Scripture to mind. You know, every sermon you prepare, every schedule you try to write, everything you try to do for me, Is like crumpled paper with green scribbles. Don't forget you're a child. But why was that precious to you? Because she's your child. What do we have to bring to Him? But scribbles. That's it. And uh, sometimes He condescends to bless us when we feel like we're the biggest failures in the world. And fifthly, God gently asks him a question that's designed to make him examine himself. It's interesting. First, he tells him in verse 7, the journey's too great for thee. What journey? Did he mean the journey to Sinai? I'm really not sure. Maybe the journey of service to God. Maybe just the journey of life. It's too great for you. In other words, you've been thinking you're sufficient. And until you learn, without me, you can do nothing. You'll never really have life figured out. He would say the same to you and I. The journey's too great for thee. Where's our confidence? Is it Christ's efficiency or is it mine or yours? The journey's too great. What's the question though? Verse 9 and 13, God's question comes twice and Elijah never directly answers. What's he asking him? Uh, Here's Elijah goes to Horeb. And the Lord says to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Why are you here? Think about where you are, Elijah. Now, Horeb is Sinai. Say mountain. Elijah was on the mount where God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am that I am. After the Exodus, they came back to the same mountain and it was there on that same mountain where God had met with Moses and spoke as a man face to face and where he gave the law. You'll remember it was also on that same mount where Moses asked God, show me your glory. And the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock. It's very possible this cave Elijah's in is the very same cleft of the rock where God hid Moses and passed by in all of His glory. It's like the Lord's asking Elijah, what are you doing here in this condition knowing what's happened here? Maybe sometimes He asks us the same thing. What are you doing here? Not as a condemnation. What are you doing here in self pity when you're so surrounded by blessings? You're holding the inspired record of God's faithfulness. There's a thousand and one reasons to give thanks right now, and you know it. What are you doing here? Sixthly, God lets him vent. I want to be careful here. I I don't mean irreverence, okay? There has to be a healthy fear in our approach to God. Uh, But uh, I'll remind us though, the word boldness used in the New Testament, come boldly, it doesn't mean this brashness. The idea is saying everything. In other words, actually believing that God already knows it all, so I may as well tell Him. Sometimes He's not going to do anything until we actually believe that. Sometimes we'll confess things to God that shock us because we need to. Lord, I don't believe You're really good. I could never say that to God. Well, if you believe it, you may as well. That's what Elijah's doing. I mean, look what he says. He, Elijah's answer basically here is what it is. Your people have rejected you. You've let them desecrate the places of worship. They've slaughtered your messengers. Now, all of that's true. But here's this basic premise. You're not doing your job very well, and I care about your reputation more than you do. Sounds shocking, but I would wager some of us are there more than we think. We may as well come clean with it. And by the way, a lesson for us on the side of dealing with those that are in despair like this you may hear some things that you don't like. I mean, you go chase someone into their cave to try to pull them out. You better not take personal offense when some of the flames are aimed at you. Sometimes they're going to vent and they're going to say things irrational. And I would ask, who here has never been irrational? <laughs> you ever have those moments where you're thinking irrational and you know it and you're going to do something and you're going to, whatever it is, and all the while God's gentle voice is telling you, you know you're not going to do that. And you're saying, yeah, I know I'm not going to do that, but I'm still going to think about it anyway. So, God just lets him vent. And then, here's a big, this, this is absolutely huge. Sometimes we get the idea that God is always the God of the cataclysmic, at least in the Old Testament. If only God would deal with me as He did with these guys in the past. Remember, Peter says we have a more sure word of prophecy. You and I can go and we can hear the words of God anytime we want. They couldn't always do that. Um, God shows His cataclysmic power In three ways. And what he's doing is reconfirming to Elijah his preferred method of dealing with people. Look at verse 11 and 12. Try to picture this. He said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. So here's Elijah. Behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks. Now, we get strong wind here in Helena, but I would wager you haven't seen a wind that shatters boulders in a while. Now, well, that's a wind. So, first comes this wind that literally busts rocks in pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Now the whole mountain starts shaking. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after this fire, a still, small voice. That phraseology means a thin, delicate whisper. And I'm telling you, that voice would have been very, very delicate after what he just saw. The roaring wind, the earthquake, the fire, and now the delicate whisper. It's interesting, Elijah doesn't seem to be very impressed. What seems to be going through his mind is, well, that's wonderful, but why don't you use some of that clout to crush Jezebel then? Yeah, I know you're powerful. Do something about Jezreel! See, here's the deal. Elijah's ministry had been one of cataclysmic demonstrations of divine power since the beginning. Ravens feeding him. People raised a life from the dead, calling down fires from heaven. And he was in great danger of equating the God of the cataclysmic, that that's the way God always has to work or He's not doing anything. And so the Lord gives him this display And then a delicate whisper. And three times it says, the Lord was not in whatever this was. And so the Lord asked him, and Elijah says it again, I'm jealous for you, but apparently you're not. God wasn't in the wind, the fire, the earthquake. Do you know why? Because God is the God of the commonplace. Now He'll use those things to get attention at times or prepare the way, but His preferred method of dealing with men is gently from within, sometimes for a very, very long time. And see, our problem is dwelling on this earth in bodies of flesh, we tend to equate what we see as inactivity from God with Him not doing anything. Remember what Peter says? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Why would He say that? And people say, well, the world's still here. Jesus hasn't returned. He must not be returning then. And he says, the Lord's not slack like some men count slackness. He's long-suffering. Oh, He's coming. He'll do exactly what He said. But God does not need the cataclysmic to carry out His purposes, and the vast majority of what He does we would call commonplace. It's interesting. You can read the book of Esther. And there's one word you'll not find. You know what it is? God. He's there. But you see Him all through that as the God of the commonplace. Oh, He could have intervened cataclysmically, and He certainly did intervene. But more of a gentle, delicate whisper. Number eight, God reminds him that the work is far larger than just him. Remember, he's isolated. I'm the only one. Look at verse 18. Yet I have left me. You hear the terminology? Elijah, this isn't up to chance. Let me remind you of something. I have left for myself 7,000 in Israel. That's not counting Judah. I have left 7,000 just in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. He says, Elijah, guess what? I can give you 7,000 reasons to be encouraged. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean I'm not doing it. Friends, around us, I mean, don't, don't we get tempted? We talk about apostasy and falling away, and we, we, we get tempted. Woe is us. So, let's not fall into that trap. Let me tell you what's all over this world. Oh, there's apostasy, there's error, but let me tell you what else is there. There's thousands who have been kept from bowing the knee to all the bales that are out there. And God will make sure there's always a remnant kept to himself, of churches and of individual Christians until we're raptured out of here. Ninth. Amazingly, God gives him more work to do. You know, it's amazing reading this record. God never directly answers this question. And uh, by the way, maybe you've noticed the same thing in the book of Job. Job has these deep questions about what God's doing. And the Lord never answers them all. He appears to Job, and when he appears to Job, God's doing the asking. And it begins with, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, there's no unanswered, difficult questions we have that a higher view of God won't fix. Job learned that. Elijah learned that. Elijah, I don't need earthquakes. I don't need fires. I don't need winds. I don't need to drop fire from heaven. I don't need to use rainstorms. I don't need to use drought. I don't need to use anything you can see. Because I'm God and there's none like me. And don't you dare think for a second I'm ever stopping working, even though you don't see it. Most of what takes place in your Christian life when you grow, I mean, look at a plant. Where's the most important part of plant growth happen? Happens underground. And you tear that out to look at it, and what happens? You kill the plant. Most of the growth in your Christian life is hidden. Oh, God sees it. But sometimes roots need to be struck downward before this growth happens quickly. Now, God wasn't finished with Elijah yet. He basically tells him, all right, now get up. Verse 15, go back to Damascus. Now you're going to anoint a new king over Syria. And then you're uh, going to anoint a new king over Israel. And then you're going to anoint another prophet to take your place, which you're not leaving just yet. And off he goes. It's like the Lord's telling him, the work's going to go on after you're gone. You're one cog in this wheel. But don't worry, I haven't fallen off my throne yet. You know what's interesting? All the while, Elijah's asking God to kill him. God not only feeds him, gives him drink, gives him rest, encourages him, but God had already made plans that Elijah would not die ever. I mean, remember, God's timeless. He's just as well in the future as He is in the past as He is in the present. I mean, here's Elijah saying, oh Lord, it's enough, just kill me. And, and God is actually watching this guy carried off to heaven in a chariot of fire. <laughs> oh no, you're, you're not going to die that way, don't worry. Uh, it doesn't get a whole lot more triumphant than curbside service from a flaming chariot. Now, We might be part of the generation that doesn't die. We don't know. Is despair going to come? It's going to come at times to us and others. I mean, is God still pleading with the hearts of men? Is He still ordaining circumstances? Think about your last week. Think hard for a minute. How many circumstances were there in this last week that affected you? How many thousands? How many were an accident? Zero. The shoes you're wearing this morning, the shirt you have on, the car you arrived in, the chair you're sitting in, nothing, nothing by accident. Are there things God's doing that we know nothing about? Yep. Yep. Lots of them. Lots of them. Does He have more work for us to do? Well, if you're still sitting here, the answer is yes. Yes, He does. Men fail. We fail. Don't ever get the idea God needs you. I cringe. I have read that. In fact, I read one recently from a popular Bible caller. Now, I know what they meant by it. But I still cringe when I see young people told, God needs the next generation of leaders raised up. And I'm thinking, God doesn't need anything. How about God's willing to use the next generation of leaders? And that includes you. Well, let's determine we're going to rest in His goodness. And that when we don't know what's going on, we don't have to know. If we had to know, He'd tell us. I'm a firm believer. I've said it many times. A lot of the things we think, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask this. I say, no, you won't. (laughs) Most of those things, if you even remember it, you'll have such a higher view of God. When you see Him, the question won't even matter. Can you honestly say you know the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't mean have you attended church? Have you been baptized? Do you own a Bible? Do you name the name of Christ? The Lord said in Matthew 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't I prophesied in your name and cast out demons and done many wonderful works? He's going to say to them, depart. I never knew you. you know why He never knew them? They refused to come the one way He prescribed. If you can't sit here this morning and say, I am trusting Jesus Christ He is God. He died for me. He rose from the dead the third day. He died to pay the penalty for my sins. I'm trusting Him alone plus nothing. If that's not you, you will face God to pay for your sins yourself. And there will be an individual penalty for every thought, word, and deed that didn't conform perfectly to His image. You see, the whole idea that man can save himself is an offense to God that we can't hardly fathom. Because you know what it's doing? It's not elevating men. It's trying to pull God down to man's level. And I'm telling you, in the Garden of Eden, when man sinned, that one sin made him fit for hell. No wonder God says there's none righteous. No, not one. No amount of eating bread or being dunked in water or attending religious services can ever take away your sin. Have you trusted Christ alone? If not, you can. I'm not talking about some formula. And I don't need to be some kind of salesperson. I hate it when that happens. But if I can help, I'd be glad to. The Lord says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this record of Elijah because we see ourself there. (laughs) And Thank you, Lord, for your tenderness with him and your patience and the fact you want to use him and the fact you want to use us. Help us to bow before you and worship before we try to do anything for you. And help us to rem- remember, Lord, we're not needed. We're wanted. And the best we can ever offer you is as a little child would offer Help us to remember you are pleased with us because of Christ. And we can walk with you in consistent victory. In Jesus' name, amen.